is Our American Stories, and our crew is always looking for, well, different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh, and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry. And this one stumbled on our desk, and it's called Anger Rooms, A Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress. This was in the New York Times, and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities. And Donna Alexander, well, she knows a lot about Anger Rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, Talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things. Okay. um, Well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background. So um, both my mother and my father uh, were Army, uh, they're Army veterans. And I spent all of my summers in uh, New York, um, in the Bronx. So um, I kind of got a, <laughs> a a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military uh, family. And um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son uh, that are 10 and 12 years old. That's fantastic. And tell me about the, you know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Sampson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology, and I Mm -hmm. bounced around, and and it sounds like you bounced around. What, how did that help shape and form your character? I I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella. I know that it it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of, of different people because, you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time, so I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, I think it just built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and and uh, lifestyle. So I think it helped in that fact. And then it also gave me a, a sneak peek at, um, at traveling. Um, it lets me, it let me know that I like traveling. <laughs> so um, it, it actually, I guess, played a, a nice little part in, in my life. Well, and you grew up, you, you spend a lot of time, you said in the summers in the Bronx and uh, as a kid from Northern New Jersey, one of the great pleasures of my life, a dear friend of mine said, Let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge, and let's go to this place called Orchard Beach. And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there, and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, did Did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach? No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there. Um, usually when I got to New York and I played, I 
stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well, if you ever get a chance, it still happens, and it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just won't move. And I think part of the reason they won't move are Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody. It's required <laughs> And it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this, this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did, how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger room? Um, when I was 16 and at home in Chicago, um, at the time, I want to say that was around 98, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system. And I just figured that, I could help out in some way, and I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members, uh, that went to jail for, like, punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well, what if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked, and then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. (laughs) And then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something. And that's basically how the anger room was born. Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the stuff people break, how you built this business and where it is now. It sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon And we're talking to Donna Alexander and her story from the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress where people pay Donna a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to Our American Network to catch all that we do. More with Donna Alexander after these messages. Yeah. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander. 
And an article in the New York Times recently, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress was the headline. And my goodness, you've got to pick that up and read it. And we just started laughing. But there was something deep that was being captured here. So, Donna, you, you have your garage, and people are coming in. And what are they busting up in that garage? Um, they were breaking things like TVs and computers, um, laptops, a lot of electronics, and uh, like stuffed animals and things like that, whatever I can find. Um, around my neighborhood that we had that we would have out for our bulk trash pickup days. And and so this continues to happen and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think I need to get a separate location away from my garage? I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business. Um I wanna say is the I know is the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers, and they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the stranger started popping up, I'm like, okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that, hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up. And I, it turned out that I did. So. And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna, for the most part? Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to. <laughs> and so how do, how, do we, how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan? Did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business, and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital. Yeah. um, Going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just, like, jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional uh, bank financing or anything like that. What I did is I started... uh, from the background work. So I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property. And then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level. So um, it, I wanted just to make it fair. And then once I incorporated all of that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there, and it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000 and plus no's and doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later um, that was willing to sublease to me. So my first space was a little bit over... Um, 780 square feet and he just let us go uh, go for it and when we did uh, before I even opened the doors I had accumulated a waiting list so I had a four month long waiting list it's fantastic uh, yeah <laughs> by the way I'm a landlord I own some commercial property and for anybody who's a landlord out there you're always thinking hmm who do I want in my space and <laughs> I, I guess you had to be thinking or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking she breaks stuff uh, next. I mean, you know, what if a brick goes through like the... Exactly. 
Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What are, are you able to insure this business? Oh, yes. That was the very next thing that um, that came up. And it was funny because I thought I got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord. And he was like, hey, you think you're going to need some insurance? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. So I, I searched. Uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance, but um, I was able to get us insured, fully insured, and even the insurance company, uh, when I had to explain to them what we do and how we do it, um, they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before. So um, it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business, and then they were able to uh, cover us. So, yeah, we definitely have. have so, so your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops. The selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on well, what's happened in that industry before? You are mm-hmm. actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first. The first. Good for you. Yeah. So now let's Thank talk you. about your expansion plans. You, you, you succeed in this first location. And where is the actual location of that first store? Um, it's, in a, it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um, a suburb of Dallas. Yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. This is one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them. And who are your who are your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in? More men than women? Old, young, corporate, uh, hipsters? Uh, are, are, do hipsters <laughs> have anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so... I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, uh, family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three and we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents, and we've had people as old as 75 uh, come in and break stuff. So um, we just we just attract a lot of different people. <laughs> and do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this, Donna? I mean, do, do people come in more stressed and leave happier? Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe, so... Um, from all of that uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show uh, a lot of therapeutic value. And I get people all the time uh, that participate, and they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It, it even helps out health-wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight. Uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there. Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, <laughs> your time in, uh, running in the anger room. 
Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space, and we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene, and I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down, and he picked up the telephone, and he pretended like he was talking to somebody, and he got mad because um, the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he, like, totally destroyed the room, like, to bits and pieces. It was awesome. <laughs> That's my most memorable one. <laughs> That's great. And tell me what your plans are, Donna. You're, you're heading off to two new cities. And I assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger. I'm thinking that, you know, some parts of America might not have as much anger as others. But what's your goal? What, what, in your dream, in your, in your vision, in your blueprint for success? What does that look like, Donna? Um, my goal, I would love for the Anger Room just to be a household name. Um, I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um, and sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worry about getting judged or uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to, to let their hair down, and that's what I want. Well, when I'm company. in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. Angerroom.com. Angerroom.com is where you can go to learn more. And... We want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So you know, let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress. Welcome to the jump. Um, just literally two or three minutes ago, we were informed that our friend Craig Sager has passed away. I'm very sorry to inform you all, Craig. As so many of you know, had such a valiant fight against leukemia. He was diagnosed in 2014. He went through three bone marrow transplants, each one tougher than the last. And I have to tell you, having had so many conversations with him, and his family along the way. The way Craig fought this spoke so much to the kind of life that he lived, the kind of values that he had, and the family that he had around him. And that was Rachel Nichols of ESPN breaking the news. The TNT's Craig Sager, the ultimate sideline reporter and husband and father to five children, died of leukemia. And this is a part of our final thought series. 
where we hear from folks who are dying and or their loved ones. And today's is on the life of Craig Sager. His very first gig as a 22-year-old radio reporter in Illinois. He wanted to drive to Atlanta to try and see Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's untouchable home run record. You can see in the video there a young Craig Sager trying to get in there and snag an interview with Henry Aaron. There were just two problems. He didn't have press credentials. Oops, forgot that. And his boss would fire him if he wasn't back the next morning. Oops, he didn't care. There he was, running after Hank Aaron. And uh, just a beautiful thing to see. The very first reporter to rush the field and the very first reporter to celebrate with all the players as Henry Aaron broke that illustrious Babe Ruth record. A 21-year-old kid right behind Hank Aaron. Again, you can see it. The most famous shot of him crossing home plate. Craig Sager would report on almost every sport, but he made his mark as a sideline reporter in the NBA. If you don't know Craig, he was most known for his absolutely ridiculous outfits, wearing clashing suits of every color and pattern known to mankind, always with a handkerchief and cowboy boots that were often skins ranging from gator to crocodile and ostrich. And NBA players and coaches loved it and had a whole lot of fun calling him out for his ridiculous clothing, and many times would even rip out his handkerchief and blow their noses on it during live interviews. Just fantastic. Let's take a listen to a montage we put together of Phil Jackson, Chris Webb, Greg Popovich interacting with Craig about his outfits. You know, I didn't recognize you right away. I thought you were the good humor ice cream man. I like that costume, too. Oh, it's not a costume. That's, that's my wardrobe. Oh, I thought, I thought it was a costume. How can you be that professional in a suit that looks like that? Seven turnovers is five field goals. What was the key? I think they were looking at your suit. It's a nice suit you got on there. Easter passed, though. Easter already went by. <laughs> and our favorite player-coach interaction with Craig Saver of all has to be, well... Kevin Garnett's most famous ripping of Sager's outfits. This time, Craig was wearing a pink checkered sport coat, a red striped shirt, blue tie, maroon and yellow handkerchief, red pants, red socks, and yes, red alligator boots. Okay, look, I've never in my life tried to really go at you in your suits and stuff. Tonight, I am stressing to you, you take this outfit home and you burn it. We don't want to see this. I know you don't double back with outfits. I've never seen you in an outfit twice, but you take this right here. I don't care if it's Versace, name brand. It costs Saeed. You, I, no, Saeed, I don't care. You take this and you burn it. It's not any part I can keep? No, nothing. So when you get done with this, you should be butt-ass naked. This should be, this should be burned, okay? It's good to see you, like always. In, in the shoes, too. Just burn them, Okay. They just burn it. Don't ask no questions. Just burn the whole, the red socks, which the people can't see at home. Take all this, handkerchief, lime thong, all that. Burn it. Okay? Fire cell? Burn it. Gasoline, <laughs> kerosene, either one. <laughs> Classic. But Craig Sager wasn't just some goofball with goofy outfits. He was a great reporter. Charles Barkley pointed out that most folks don't know that he went to Northwestern. But more importantly, he was brilliant at what he did. Here's a montage of former players Tracy McGrady, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kenny Smith talking about Sager's craft. As a guy that was interviewed by him several times, there was, there was never a time where, where I felt like 
I didn't want to talk to Craig Sager. Like, no matter what was going on, um, he just made me feel comfortable. He just made me feel like um, I want to have a conversation with him. And, you know, what I loved about Craig is he always asked the right question. He's very, very professional. You know, in L.A. we had a lot of stuff going on, but he never touched on that. He always, you know, touched on touched on the right question, and, and he brought the best out of everybody. And, you know, for me as a player, at the end of a game, <clears throat> if you got interviewed by Craig Sager, it means you did work. So whenever I saw Craig, I made it a point to try to dominate that game. So at the end, the last person he's talked to on TNT in front of Kenny and Chuck would be me. When we, were, when we came into the NBA, no one knew the sideline reporter's name. No. It was that guy over there, that guy from CBS, that guy from, you know, NBC. Right. But Craig gave it a name. He, he really did what, almost like what Dennis Rodman did for rebounding. Mm. People didn't really think rebounding was a big deal. But Dennis Rodman said, oh, you could get paid and be a great rebounder and get noticed. And Craig did the same thing for sideline reporting. Now, every, I know most sideline reporters and players know their name and they, they're the same people, and they, and, but the emulation started from that. Yep, and while at work during a 2014 game in Dallas, Craig Sager suddenly became sick. And the doctors told him that his red blood cell count was so low that he was near death. He needed six blood transfusions just to survive. He had leukemia. They told him he had three to six months to live. His only hope was finding a perfect bone marrow match and then getting a transplant. You might think family members have a good shot at being perfect matches, but they are only 2% of the time. Craig needed a miracle, and he got it. His son, Craig Jr., was that perfect match. But the road ahead of chemotherapy and rehab was grueling, and he lost 60 pounds. His TNT colleague, Eric Johnson, frequently visited him and had an appreciation for what Craig was going through. You see, Eric himself once had cancer. I remember um, the anxiety, and I remember the uncertainty. But he was always, hey, EJ, are you, EJ? Hey, look at this great card. Hey, look what they sent me. Hey, look at this putter. Man, I can't wait to get out and play with that. It was never a question of me having to go in and say, hey, hang with them. You know, hey, you can do this. I'm the one who got fired up. They say a positive outlet can be therapeutic, and that's how it looked for Craig Sager. A year later, the cancer was gone, and Craig was back on the job. His first game back was in his hometown of Chicago, but he wouldn't have a second game. Not then. The cancer came back, and they told him he had two weeks to live. Here's Craig responding to Bernie Goldberg's question, what are you thinking about at this point? We're going to do this. And uh, they said, we have this chemo. It hasn't been approved by the FDA yet. We've never given it to a person in your condition who's already had a transplant. I said, do what you have to do. And he says, you know, you may not survive this. This may kill you instead. Craig's unprecedented chemo treatment was for 14 straight days, 24 hours a day, and that much chemo has a high chance of shutting down your body. But Craig lived to fight another day and received a second bone marrow transplant from his son. And most of all to him, he made it back once more to the NBA. 
the rest of Craig Sager's incredible life story and heroic battle with leukemia after these messages. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we continue with our celebration of the life of Craig Sager, husband, father of five, and the NBA's most beloved sideline reporter, and his battle with leukemia, which he had successfully beaten into remission, but then it came back. And he beat it back again and returned to the work he loved and returned to interviewing Spurs coach Greg Popovich, who can't stand doing mandatory interviews. Here's an example of how it typically goes between them. Well, Coach, with the regular season around the corner. This what is a preseason, right? We got to do this in the preseason? Are you kidding me? Part of the contract. In the preseason, we got to do this? Well, the preseason? We have to rehearse to get ready. I need the practice. <laughs> but here's how the interview went this time on Craig's return to the sidelines. I got to honestly tell you, this is the first time I've enjoyed doing this ridiculous interview we're required to do. And it's because you're here and you're back with us. Welcome back, baby. Well, thank you very much. I lay in the hospital for months hoping to do this again. Now ask me a couple of inane questions. But then the leukemia came back a second time, and Sager asked the doctors. What are my chances? How long do I have to live? Is there a cure? Um, so they talk in terms that everybody's totally different. And I go, I know. I go, well, what are the chances, you know? And, well... You got, normally you got three to six months to live. But he goes, somebody may only have a week. Somebody may be five years. You could be the person with the five years. And I go, well, whatever it takes, let's get doing it. Because I'm not going to be that three to six months. I'm going to be the five years. And like I said, I think we're going to make medical history. Yet another bone marrow transplant is third which is extremely rare. This time, despite the cancer's relapse, Craig continued to work. Oh, my God. It's the greatest thing ever. When you're here, you totally you forget that your platelets are low and your blood count's down and you need to have another bone marrow biopsy on Monday and you're going to have you know, more cancer treatment. You just, oh, that's gone. Craig Sager's doctors said they wanted to put him in isolation, believing it was his best hope of survival. But Craig refused saying he wouldn't have died from leukemia, but a broken heart. His heart never broke, and after a heroic battle with leukemia for two years, Sager passed from this earth on December 15th, 2016. But before he did, on July 13th, 2016, at ESPN's ESPY Awards, he received the Jimmy V Award, an award for perseverance that is named after Jimmy Valvano, the head basketball coach of North Carolina State, who improbably took them all the way to the title in 1983 
and died of bone cancer at age 47. Just eight weeks before he died, Valvano himself won an ESPY award and gave this speech, which Craig said he'd pull up on his phone in his darkest moments at the hospital. Let's take a listen to just one of the highlights. To me, there are three things we all should do every day. We do this every day of our life. You're going to have, what a wonderful, number one is laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is think. You should spend some time in thought. And number three is you should have your emotions moved to tears. Could be happiness or joy. But think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. And that was Jimmy V assuring the audience that he was fine and hoping they'd live a proper life too. And let's look forward now to Craig Sager's ESPY Award speech. He started off by thanking his bride. My beloved bride, Stacy. She is my heaven on earth. In the darkest of moments, tears running down her cheeks, we embraced and we prayed. Please, don't leave me, she pleaded. We can fight this together. There's no fear in love, and your love is my strength. Craig Sager continued. I have spent most of the past year and a half at the most impactful cancer hospital in the world, MD Anderson in Houston. And many nights I don't get out of the hospital until well after midnight, and I always take the same walking path back to the hotel. The sidewalks wind through a maze of buildings, including the Texas Children's Hospital. Many nights I'll stop, pause, and I'll go inside. And a few feet inside the hallway is this large model train display covered by glass. There are seven buttons on the outside. They activate the trains, the circus, the toys, and the trolley. And many nights alone, in the stillness and solitude of the hospital, I push those buttons. And I watch the trains as they disappear through the tunnel and emerge full steam on the other side. I watch the trains as they pass by the town square, the Dinosaur Canyon, the Pirates Cove, Santa Land, and the ice skating rink. And I sit there and I watch and I listen. I listen to the sounds of the circus, of the kids laughing, and of the train chugging along. Now, I don't know why I am so drawn to this train set. Perhaps it's my life coming full circle. Maybe it's just the kid inside all of us. Or perhaps it's a few minutes in my life that leukemia cannot take from me. The train actually takes two minutes and 20 seconds to make a full loop. But what is time really? When you are diagnosed with a terminal disease like cancer, leukemia, your perception of time changes. When doctors tell you you have three weeks to live, do you try to live a lifetime of moments in three weeks? Or do you say, the hell with three weeks? When doctors tell you that 
Your only hope of survival is 14 straight days of intense chemotherapy, 24 hours a day. Do you sit there and count down the 336 hours? Or do you see each day as a blessing? Time is something that cannot be bought. It cannot be wagered with God, and it is not in endless supply. Time is simply how you live your life. And here's Craig on how he lived his life and his advice for how we should live ours. I have run with the Bulls in Pamplona. I have raced with Mario Andretti in Indianapolis. I have climbed the Great Wall of China. I have jumped out of airplanes over Kansas. I've wrestled gators in Florida. I have sailed the ocean with Ted Turner. I have swam with the oceans in the Caribbean. And I have interviewed Greg Popovich. (laughs) Mid-game, Spurs down seven. If I've learned anything through all of this, it's that each and every day is a canvas waiting to be painted. An opportunity for love, for fun, for living, for learning. To those of you out there who are suffering from cancer, facing adversity, I want you to know that your will to live and to fight cancer can make all the difference in the world. The way you think influences the way you feel. And the way you feel determines how you act. And here's how Craig Sager concluded this remarkable speech at ESPN's ESPY Awards. I am grateful to my parents, Coral and Al. They raised me with a positive outlook on life. I always see the glass half full. I see the beauty in others. And I see the hope for tomorrow. If we don't have hope and faith, we have nothing. Whatever I might have imagined a terminal diagnosis would do to my spirit, it summoned quite the opposite, the greatest appreciation for life itself. So I will never give up, and I will never give in. I will continue to keep fighting, sucking the marrow out of life as life sucks the marrow out of me. I will live my life full of love and full of fun. It's the only way I know how. Thank you and good night. And that's Craig Sager trying to lift everybody's spirits as he's dying. Pretty good. Pretty damn terrific, actually. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories. For all of you going through tough times, hard times, and even those that aren't. You just turn on a speech like this or put on Valvano's every once in a while, no matter what you're going through. Watching Jimmy V smiling at you while he's dying is just the greatest, greatest message to all of us what we do with our lives, what we do with our time. And always from both of those men, you heard the word love over and over and over again. And here in Our American Stories, we talk about love more than almost anything else. 
a life well lived. Craig Sager. stories and for the next half hour we'll be discussing a big topic the state of love on college campuses and i might add this probably applies to the millennial generation and maybe even to people in their early 30s but the focus here is on one particular college campus and one particular professor and we're fortunate to be joined by one of the nation's true experts and contrarians on the topic and that's Kerry Cronin, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, Kerry, first off, you're a philosopher. And, and so <laughs> love, by the way, love is not something that uh, philosophers ignore. Um, but, no. but dating, probably. And <laughs> I'm not sure Plato dug deep into dating. Um, <laughs> but how did you become such an expert that students, your, your, the people and the kids you teach, mentor, coach, dubbed you the love doctor. Is it through oh the philosophy classes or something more? Tell us a little bit about this title you've earned at Boston College. Well, it is, it is kind of funny to me. I, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on this, but I love talking to students about their lives and about their choices and the ways uh, that they make their life decisions and their moral decisions. Um, I think it does, it has come, this whole thing, me being involved in this and talking to students about it, had emerged in the context of philosophy classes that I teach. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at texts that, in which we're thinking about friendship and, and relationships and the importance of that in a community and in a person's life and flourishing. And so we sort of get to these kinds of questions all the time. But, but it was conversations with students outside of class, actually, that led me to talk really specifically about dating and hookup culture and to find out what the heck is going on out there. And students over the years, probably, I've been probably talking to students about this for eight to ten years now very openly, and they have just been wonderful uh, in telling, in being very upfront about what, what dating and hookup culture is like in college, what, how they feel about it, what their anxieties, their fears, and their desires are. So it's been wonderful. I, everything I know, I've learned from them. And how did you stumble upon the specific star- talks you had about dating and relationships? How did you stumble upon this absence in their lives? Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I had a conversation with a group of students about, gosh, it had to be 10 years ago now. I had I had worked with some students on a student program, and we, were going, we went out for ice cream after the program 
just because it had gone well and I was the facilitator of a discussion. It was a public discussion on, on faith, actually. And, and so we went out for ice cream afterwards, and they were all seniors. There were eight seniors, and we, we were just talking about life and life after graduation and that sort of thing. And I, after talking about jobs and grad schools and different options, I, I said, you know, what about, what about the people you're dating? And, and I got a real blank stare from them all. And I thought, what's going on? And they said, oh, we don't do that dating thing anymore. Where that's, we just don't do that. That's not really done here. And I, I pressed them on it. And after that, I just started asking questions regularly about it. And students told me a lot uh, about hookup culture. I learned things that I, I thought I knew about. I learned things that I never knew about. I, I've, and I've thought about these things with students for years since. Well, and it's uh, interestingly enough, you, you learned, I, I guess, that the hookup culture, just as years ago there were dating rules, Carrie, yeah. that the hookup yeah. culture itself had rules. <laughs> you know, what I heard from students a lot at the beginning was, well, you know, we don't, we don't really date. We would like to keep things much more casual. And that there was this idea that, that the hookup culture was the casual thing and, and that that was the easy thing. But when I, when I listened to them, I realized that, that it, it actually looks like it's super casual and that there are no rules, but there are lots of rules. And I say to students all the time, and they, and they all agree, you have to know the rules to participate in hookup culture. Everybody knows them, but nobody speaks about the rules. And, um, and if you break the rules, you're out. You know, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. So, right. so you, they, they figure the rules out pretty quick. And, and, and the rules include, you know, so... Typically, when I talk to students, I'll, I'll run through some, like, the top ten rules, you know, rules like don't talk about it while it's happening. Don't ask, what does this mean? You know, don't, you got to learn how to use texting, you know, don't stay over, know where your, you know, know where your earrings are so you can grab them when you're leaving, know where your shoes are, you know, don't be awkward, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that, that are part and parcel of the hookup culture that, that students know and that they figure out the rules. But as I say to them, isn't it strange that we think there are no rules and that dating is so formal and everybody's so terrified of asking somebody out for a cup of coffee, but to get involved in hookup culture looks like it's ordinary and casual and that there aren't rules, but, but we know that. We know there are. are. You know, I want, to play yeah. a, I want to play a clip from you. I'm going to hold on a response, and then we'll get the response on the other side of a break, Carrie. But it's, okay, a, it's sure. a clip Thanks. of you and a talk you gave to the Love and Fidelity Network. And then again, we'll, okay. ask, we'll, ask, we'll talk to you about it right after the break. I know that students at, at my university are incredibly ambitious, smart, wonderful, socially just, interested in other people until about Thursday afternoon, right? And then the nighttime culture sort of gets going and suddenly it's, it's, a, different, it's a whole different scene. It's a whole different scene. And we're going to get to the other side of that scene in a bit. Uh, we're joined by Kerry Cronin. She's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she's known at the school as the love doctor. And it's because of some of the things she's been doing with the kids as it relates to their lives and to this thing that for millennium men and women did called dating. But the millennials, it turns out, are not doing much of. 
And I think this will interest every parent listening. It'll certainly listen, uh, excite the millennials listening because this is their lives we're talking about. And not in judgment. None of that here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And more after this moment with the Love Doctor. This is Lee Habib, and the subject right now is dating, or the lack thereof. Something very new, actually, to millennials. They're, they're not doing it like we used to. Why? What's going on? Nobody knows about this better. No one's dug deeper into the subject. You don't know her, but now you do. And we're going to get to know her better over the coming months, and I hope years, because I don't think you can ever stop talking about a subject like this. We're talking to Kerry Cronin, who's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, but is known as the love doctor by the students there who adore her for daring them to do something that people have been doing for centuries. And it's a little thing called dating. Where we last picked up, Kerry was describing this Thursday night culture. The kids are a certain kind of wonderful child all week long. And then, well, the werewolves of London come out, so to speak, and something starts to happen. Well, let's, uh, let's continue, uh, Kerry. Go from there. So that's funny. That's a great description of it. I, I often say to students, you know, the students I, I, I work with and live with here at, at Boston College are lovely. They are just hardworking, lovely young people, and they, they're eager to please, they're eager to work hard and compete, and they, they hold a door for you at 50 paces. It's exhausting how nice they are. <laughs> but then the nighttime culture is, is really aggressive. It's, it's very aggressive in terms of competitive drinking and the hookup culture is very aggressive and they feel it they're they're i i find and we we all know that college students in the united states now are are very much uh, affected by anxiety and stress and i think this has a lot to do with it um they're they're busy in their daytime lives but at night uh it's it's rough out there and they're trying to to find their way and find their work out important questions about who they are and what they want in their lives but there's not there isn't a culture that's helping them at all. No, and you know, it, it's always been tough to be 18. Uh, so let's not forget that. And, and it's hard for us at 30, 40, I'm, I'm in my 50s to remember. Sure. But my goodness, think about it just for a minute. And you'll wish you weren't 18 again after you think that's about true. it, actually. But for those of us who aren't aware, Gary, can you paint a picture of what this, quote, nighttime hookup culture and scene looks like? And why exactly it's so appealing in the end, or maybe not appealing, but what draws these students into it? Sure. I think, you know, what, what happened on, in the, on the college campus scene, I think, and I, I'm mostly talking about uh, four-year residential colleges, because I, I think at, at, when I go to schools and 
at which the populations are uh, are not residential students, you don't you don't see this as much. People are working part time jobs or working to get through school, and they don't have time for this. But at four year residential schools, students will often you know they they come off of really stressful days, and the weekend uh, on the weekends they they pre game parties, which means you know they get drunk before they even go to parties, mostly because. For instance, our campus is, is mostly a dry campus, and so they are ostensibly not drinking on campus, right. but they, they have to find their ways to drink. So they go to parties, and they've got to get drunk fast. You know, the keg party script is you've got to get drunk fast before the RAs or the police come and break it up. So, so it's much more of a shots culture, if you will. You know, it used to be years ago, beer was the, the drink of choice for, you know, Animal House kind of that scenario. But now they're drinking hard liquor because that's easier to, to get in to, to a dorm. They're, it's, so they're drinking hard liquor fast, and women are drinking and are binge drinking at the same rates that men are. And so, so everybody's trashed, and, and, and everybody's sort of hyper-competitive because they've, these young people, these millennials, have been competing their whole lives. You bet. You know, this is... This is definitely the organization kid that David Brooks described years ago. Yep. These students are they're highly programmed, they're highly competitive, highly achieving, and they want to achieve in their social lives too. And this script, the hookup script, yeah. has really become such a dominant script and it's it's associated with the keg party script. But it would be wrong to would it, would it be wrong for me to assume also that uh, these high achievers are also in a sense conformists? I mean they so want to get approval from their superiors from their teachers, then in the end they'll conform to whatever the norm is in this respect? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, because they've been taught, you know, they've been taught throughout their academic careers and their sports careers. You know, many of the students we have here were varsity athletes in high school. They're, you know, they know how to, how to, to find out what the formula of success is and get themselves there. Yep. They know how to do it. And, and hookup culture gives them, it gives them, check marks. You know, I've, I've hooked up with this many people. I've hooked up with this person who I think is good looking, this person who other people want. You know, it's, it gives them markers that they can achieve. And, and as I say to students, this is, this is a movement to an exterior set of, of check boxes. You know, this is, but, but it has lots of ramifications you on bet. your interior life. You've got lots of consequences. And we're talking, by the way, yeah. folks, with Kerry Cronin, and she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But on the side, she teaches a dating course there that's standing room only. The kids come from everywhere because she actually challenges them to leave this hookup culture and try and do something actually that turns out to be really daring, and that is to ask someone out on a date. Before we get into that, though, Kerry, what are the five types of hookups? And folks, parents, take notes. Talk to your kids about this. But what are they? <laughs> Right. So over the years, I, uh, when I give talks to students, um, I find that what you have to do when you're talking to students about this so that you're not coming off in, in a really judgmental way and putting them in a, in a posture of, uh, in a defensive posture is you've got to use humor and you've got you've to ask them to tell you what's going on. And what I've heard from students is uh, that there's lots of different reasons and types of hookups. And, and I often say to students, so there's the there's the pure hookup, which is a one-time deal. You know, you just meet a person at a party or you 
you know, and you hook up with them and that's that and you never hear from them again. Or maybe you see them on campus and you do the sort of campus look away, which is uh, what our students call it. You just kind of look in the other direction or pretend yep. you're looking on your phone. There's the regular hookup, which is, you know, you hooked up with somebody and then maybe you see them at, at a party the next week or the week after that and you kind of think, well, that worked out well and you get a look and you understand that that's going to happen again and maybe a couple of times. Then there's friends with benefits, which I always say to students, that's crazy. I don't, that's not what I do with my friends. And Aristotle <laughs> doesn't describe friendship that way. So no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> then there's, then there's, you know, there's, there's different uh, sort of types of hookup, hookups, like revenge hookups or, you know, or, or uh, after you break up, uh, reuniting with the old flame hookups. There's, you know, and actually there's many more than five and, the reason that I know there are many more than five is because every time I go to a school, students add to the list, which is scary. <laughs> but when you can get them to laugh about it, that's also when you can get them to start reflecting on it. When you, when you will laugh with them and say, isn't this a little strange and ridiculous and actually not what you really long for and what you really desire? Oh, you bet. You know, I'm uh, a, I'm a Christian, but one of the books that influenced my life the most, actually, and weirdly, because I tell my friends this, and they go, "What?" But it was Martin Buber's "I, I and Thou," and it, it, it's always that space between the "I" and "Thou" that we can we can draw people in, and, and too often people of faith don't allow that space to not only other people of faith, but people not of faith. Uh, yeah, we, right. we have about a, a minute here. I'm, we're going to hold you over and do another segment, Carrie, because we just can't stop talking about this. <laughs> but what do you think okay. is the cause of this present culture full of hookups but absent of love? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's the deep question. That's the $64,000 question. I, I, think, I think people are looking for an easy way to, to try to, to put their toe into you know, the water and, and try to find love without any risk. So when I talk to students about dating, actually, it's, it ends up being mostly about courage, not love. Yeah, but, you know, in the end, what did Aristotle say about courage? It's the, it's the, it's the first requirement for all of the other virtues? Or something like that. And and how can you have love without courage? We're going to hold here and we're going to continue this fascinating conversation about our kids, about ourselves in the end, uh, and about life. Because any of us who've ever said, I love you, to anybody and meant it, know they're the three hardest words to say. And if you don't hear them back, my goodness, this is the hardest thing in the world. And that's why you don't say it, because you're not sure you'll hear it back. We're talking to Carrie Cronin, and she is the doctor of love at Boston College, and she also happens to teach philosophy at Boston College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and more after this.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to Kerry Cronin. And she's a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But she has an even more serious job there in some respects, and that's counseling and coaching her young students how to do a thing called date. And in the end, how to think about love, because we all think about it, and it's a scary thing. And Kerry, thanks so much for joining us for the hour here. You bet. I wanted to read to you something from that Love and Fidelity Network interview that one girl had shared, because I think it's fascinating, and then we can pick up on this love theme. Here's what she said. She said, I have loved my time at Boston College. I have grown intellectually. I've made incredible friends. I've had amazing relationships in Boston. I have a job lined up. I'm a better sister, a better daughter, a better roommate, a better friend now. And then she said, quote, but the only area in my life in which I have not grown is the area Uh, of understanding of what I want out of love, what I want out of romance, what I understand about my own desire, my own passions. In this area, not only have I not developed, I think I have regressed. I think I am more scared, more unsure of myself, and I know myself on these things less than I did when I graduated from high school. My goodness, what a self-aware human being. What a beautiful human being to even write this, Carrie. Yeah, I remember that young woman very well. Um, she was actually part of a focus group that we ran here when we were trying to figure out uh, uh, some, some of the administrators here at Boston College tried to ran focus groups with students to try to figure out what was going on in terms of hookup culture and dating and relationships and uh, sexuality. And, and so we had a number of really wonderful students who came and shared, shared really deep and profound reflections like that with us. It was stunning to me. And when I, when I heard that young woman speak, uh, honestly, I was heartbroken. Because, you know, we pride ourselves, especially here, this is a Jesuit university, we pride ourselves on educating the whole person. And, and to me, that's unacceptable. We're not doing our job if we're not helping students to navigate the most important parts of their lives. Yep. Uh, and that, that's just heartbreaking to me. You know, man is not an economic animal alone. And, you know, the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn leaves a Soviet gulag, comes to the United States, and everybody thinks he's going to hammer communism. But he does quite the opposite. He gives a lecture to everybody about the downsides of capitalism. He's no friend of communism, but he talks about the material and how the material can actually squelch out the spiritual and kill love. And no one was expecting that from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and why it's one of the great talks in American history. By the way, you can go to Great American Rhetoric and you can look up Solzhenitsyn and look under A, not S. That's how they put everything there. We want to play a clip for you, Kerry, uh, again from that a talk at the Love and Fidelity Network and pick up on this duty and responsibility of a Jesuit school, for goodness sake, teaching the whole person. I am terrified to start recognizing that universities and colleges today are places of great opportunity, great ideas, great ambition and achievement, but not great love. That between the ages of 18 and 22, or 23 if you really just need to take an extra year, (laughs) or 21 if you're like really excelling, like while you're here in college, this is a great time to fall in love, but you probably won't. And it's not because you don't want to. But it is because there is a culture that has sprung up, that has emerged, that's not going to support 
you finding a great love alongside finding great ideas, great opportunities, great conversations, great friendships, great ambitions, great, great accomplishments. To find a great love is also something we would, we would really like to help you with. You kind of have to do it on, yourself, by, on your own, but we're certainly not helping to scaffold that, a culture that would help you do that. I'm not sure what else you can add, but tell me what really <laughs> what dug you in there, and why do you, why did universities not talk about this, and what happened? No, oh, that's a great question too. I mean, I, I you know I think in the United States the the universities, colleges and universities have really moved away from the in loco parentis model, and so by and large, even though you know. Parents are entrusting, for, for a lot of money, parents are entrusting their, their young sons and daughters to our care. The, the general rule of thumb is stay out of their business. And, and there's something important in that insight. Mm-hmm. But what happened was I think we, we went to, to a far extreme on that. And, and I find that, that college students really want a lot of help. And they're not afraid of older adults uh, helping them with things. Uh, unlike pe- previous generations who didn't trust anybody over the age of 30, <laughs> right. I find that millennials crave conversations about their lives. They, they crave coaching, if you will. Um, I find that when I talk to uh, young male students, for instance, uh, as well as young female students, actually, when I think about it, they are really receptive to life coaching sort of attitudes. And they, they, the more that I talk to them about this, the more they want to meet with me and talk to, to me about this. And so they're really craving some help, but I think that we're assuming that they don't want any help and that they don't want to be told how to live. Well, as a matter of fact, they don't want us to be overly directive or overly moralizing or judgmental, but they want conversation. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to walk that fine line uh, in having conversations that, that are helpful but not intrusive, you know. But I think, um, I think faculty and administrators and staff members who, who are happy in their own lives and who are really, um, who have, who have their own children, perhaps, uh, who are going through these kinds of things, they can be really helpful. But most people are sort of nervous about talking about these kinds of things. You know, I, I'd tell you a story. I was on a plane uh, about, probably about a, um, well over a year ago. An attractive young lady was sitting next to me, and I was writing a column and battling out a column about love. Um, and I was getting close to my little girl's birthday, and I had never known anything like that kind of love for a child. I'd known a love for, for a woman, finally, in my, and I had waited way too long to know that. Because I actually was a millennial before there were millennials in this respect. I was afraid of saying I love you to somebody. And I confess this in this column. I had never properly said it to a woman until I was 41 years old. Because I was afraid of the rejection. Who knows why? I, I don't know. But I didn't. And I write about this. And then I get to the part of the column where I'm typing. And I'm going to read you some of the words because I could feel her reading this. And as she was reading it, she, I could feel her crying as I was reading it. And I wrote, as I quoted a line from Julian Barnes, and Barnes, Barnes had said, I was 32 when we met and 62 when she died, speaking of his wife. She was the heart of my life and the life of my heart. You put two things together, Julian Barnes wrote, that have not been put together before and the world has changed. And then I wrote, that's the power of love. 
The world is changed by it. Without love, the world is barren. The day my wife told me she was pregnant, my world changed again. In what is the greatest love song ever written about childbirth, the narrator in Bruce Springsteen's Living Proof says this, In his mother's arms, it was all the beauty I could take, like the missing words to some prayer that I could never make. It was and is all the beauty I can take, watching our daughter grow and laugh and play, the heart of my life, the life of my heart, the answer to a prayer I never even knew to pray. I turned around and she was weeping. And I started a conversation as deep as I'd ever had with another human being who was about to get married and was crying, she told me, because I asked her why. Her husband just told her she did not want to have kids. Her husband-to-be. On the back end, we're going to talk about what happened there, Kerry, and then talk to you about some of those same kinds of conversations I am sure you have had with these young people. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we're talking for the hour about dating, about love, with the love doctor and a professor of philosophy at Boston College, Kerry Cronin. You're listening to Alan Jackson, and it was a day when it was that simple. And it was never simple, so let's not go back and be too nostalgic. But back in the day, my parents, so many folks I know, the guy met a girl, he asked her out, and if it was right, they moved along and they started a family. No existential dread, no I'm not ready yet, no let's hook up. It just didn't exist. Or if it did, no one, it wasn't codified into the culture. And we're talking for the hour. With the doctor of love, who also happens to be the professor of philosophy at Boston College. And that's a, that's a nickname she's been given, by the way, on campus because of this class we're about to describe and discuss. Carrie Cronin joins us. Carrie, so you've, you've diagnosed the problem, you've gotten to know the kids, and you start a dating class. Talk about that. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't actually a dating class. I, I might, maybe I would get fired for that, but it was a, <laughs> it was a senior capstone seminar. You know, many colleges and universities have these uh, capstone seminars. It was a one-credit-only, pass-fail seminar, once-a-week meeting with juniors and seniors to sort of discuss, you know, so what, what, 
what things have you discovered about yourself and life in your education? What questions do you still have? And we talked about sort of large things like the future and the role of money in your life and that sort of thing. And, and I, uh, I used to save two weeks to discuss relationships, friendships and romantic relationships. And, and after I had discovered that uh, this, the hookup culture was such a dominant script, I decided in one of these seminars that I would ask my students to go on a, tr- what, a traditional date. And I, uh, they all seemed pretty excited about that. The first group was about 15 students in a class. And so I said, oh, you know, could you, by the end of the semester, could, I want you to ask somebody out and go on a date. And so week after week, they came back and they kept talking about it. Oh, I don't know who to ask. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I kept wondering why this was so complicated. Well, we get to the end of the semester and only one of the 15 students had been able to do it, which I thought was really shocking because, again, these are really bright, wonderful, beautiful students. And so the next semester, during the drop ad period, I said to them, you're going to have an assignment to go on a to ask somebody on a date, go on a date, and and re- write a reflection about the date, and you have to do this assignment. I won't pass you if you don't. It was a requirement. <laughs> it was a requirement. That's I had to good. make it a requirement because yep. I realized they would just keep talking about it and talking about it and never doing it. So, so I said you could drop the class right now. I think three three students dropped out right away, but three more came in and. So that second semester, everybody did it, but it was sort of a mess. They didn't know what they were doing. It, you know, we had lots of, lots of students would come in and tell funny stories about it. So by the third semester, I, I sort of wisened up. I, now, when I give this assignment, I give this assignment now in my, uh, freshman, to my freshmen who take a great books class with me. Um, and I, I give them a, a sheet of paper that has instructions. I had to come up with a set of instructions because what I realized was that hookup culture had not only become the dominant social script, dating as a script had been completely lost. They didn't know how to do it. Yep. And so I, I needed to give them a set of instructions so they have to follow a set of my rules. Um, and on the back side of the, the sheet is a list of 50 inexpensive dates around Boston, you know, so that it doesn't have to be a burden. Yeah. And uh, and so from there, we've gone in every semester. Uh, I give it now to freshmen because, you know, freshmen are, uh, they, my students this year will have this assignment in February. I, I make it an optional assignment. Uh, it's a, they'll get bonus points for it on an exam. And so they all jump on that. Uh, but I, honestly, I've had students, I had students who, who started coming to that class where it was required. And Students would say to me openly in front of other students, I am taking this class so that you will make me go on a date. I want to do this. Wow, that's fascinating. And I would say, or you could just go on a date. You don't need to take a whole class <laughs> just to do that. But it's so outside of the norm yep. that they need an excuse. Well, it's and interesting, I'm, Carrie. What's interesting is that they, it seems to me they're more at ease hooking up than just sure asking somebody out. And that's remarkable. I wanted to rip through some of these rules of yours, if you don't mind. Sure. And one yeah. of them, by the way, uh, uh, like on the top of it all, is that uh, obviously it's alcohol-free because we yeah. all know that what the students use alcohol for does not at all lend itself to getting to know someone. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It, it's yep. to not know them. That's why right. we do it and allow us to do things we wouldn't do but for the alcohol. 
So here were the nine rules. You must ask someone who you are legitimately interested in, and you must ask them in person. Texts can be sent to arrange a time and place, but the invitation must be extended face-to-face. Two, the date should last between 60 and 90 minutes, no more, no less. It should be a daytime date. You must pay for a date is four, but you should spend no more than $10. Five, there's no alcohol. Six, no physical interaction. Seven, you are allowed to say that it is not for an assignment, that it is for an assignment. Eight, you can only divulge your plan with three people. Nine, when you ask the person, plan for your date no more than three days in advance. And ten, optional, submit a two-page reflection paper to Professor Cronin while this assignment is ungraded and it would be impossible to ensure its completion. It is a worthwhile endeavor. So go forth, students of Boston College, and find love. And if not love then at least a story. That is so delightful, and I'm just shocked that we are, we're, we've come to this, but thank you for doing it. What's the reaction now? You've gone from 15 students. How many students are interested in this now at Boston College? Oh, well, you know, that's the most fun, the, the most fun thing that I realized that, happened, um, that, that happens uh, is this. I actually am, in any given semester, I'm giving the dating assignment to maybe 25 students. But although I, I give a lecture on campus each year, uh, in, so, and usually there's three, three to 400 students at that lecture, and I say, if you're here, you have the dating assignment now. But the interesting thing is that, that I found that happened was not that just 15 or 25 or even 300 students went on dates. What happened was, as soon as the dating assignment was on a piece of paper, students would bring it back to their dorm rooms, their apartments. And and here, most of the upper-class students live in apartment-style suites. And so they have six or eight roommates. And so what was happening was they were bringing it back to their apartments, and it was people were discussing it. It became such a buzz. And and it really is. Everybody knows here, if students start to ask you out, you'll, they'll often hear someone respond, oh, is this a Cronin date? So, <laughs> and I always say to students, that's fine. That is Blame fun. it on me. Exactly. You know, because that'll make you feel a little less nervous. And it can be funny and something to talk about for the first five minutes of the date and laugh about. That's great. Make it a fun thing. That it, is. It, it's that, supposed to be fun. It, it is supposed to be fun, and it, it's delight. Right. It's a delight, and it's supposed to be scary too. And think exactly. about how many scary things are fun. You know, we go up in in gigantic slides and pummel on down and pay money for that. But that, that's dating. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you. You you know you you have all these kids who've done these dates. Um, mm. Can you talk about some student reflections? From their dates, give us a couple of, you know, what have you learned from your students? What have you taught them, and what have you learned from them? Oh, absolutely! I have learned so much from them. It's 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 outrageous how much I have learned from them. I have I've got uh, a locked file drawer full of these reflections. And and one of the things that I want to point out that I do in the class too is they're not only giving me uh, their reflections after they've gone on a date, but we we find class time for them to talk about it with each other and tell the story of their dating. And what they mostly want to talk about is the story of the ask, that, that asking someone out in person is, is the big hurdle, and it's the thing that they love to, to retell. And what I have I've found in Reflections is some of my favorites are 
pieces of, refl- of student reflections have to do with how anxious they feel during the ask. I had a student uh, years ago who wrote um, this beautiful reflection on, on asking a guy out, and she said, she described it thus, she said, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating as I, apo- as I approached my target. <laughs> and when, when I read it, I thought, uh-oh, wait a minute, what's going on? But these are the kinds of ways that they feel, and they, they write beautifully. But you know, you, do you know what's really going on there? I think what's going on there is it's the red badge of courage. People love to write about that which they overcome. This that's makes them exactly right. this makes them proud. And my goodness, that's better than hey, here's how I hooked up. And now it's one of those dark memoirs about how someone took too many pills and offed herself. Uh, Carrie, exactly right. I, I can't that's tell exactly right. you. You know, the, the, your point about stories is absolutely correct. One of the one of the things I say to students about hooking up is that that that's part of the game of hooking up, right? Is to you know on Sunday morning or Monday morning telling the story of who you hooked up with on the weekend and getting the points for it and the social status for yep, it. Yep. But telling the story of going on a date, students will say, "Wow, people came up to me and congratulated me for having asked somebody out, and people are impressed that I did that." They're experiencing their own bravery, their own courage, and as I often point out to them. You're for the first time asking for what it is you truly long for, what you, you really want, what you, you are nervous about, and what you think maybe this could really lead to something. And, and what we were almost encoded by God to, to ask for, too. That's right. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for what you do. In fact, one couple even got married because of the yeah. work that this professor did. The Doctor of Love, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. Carrie Cronin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lee. It was really a joy. You bet.